It's the Adam Ragusea Pod, Ep 15. Today I'm answering your questions about meatless meat and the Italian practice of eating salad at the end of the meal instead of at the beginning. But speaking of meal timing, let us start, as one often does, with breakfast. Ask Adam. Hey Adam, my name is Gal. I'm 24 years old from Israel. I wanted to ask you a question about the importance of breakfast because I tend to skip a lot of my breakfast and I heard it's not really good for you. Thank you. There is an astounding amount of large-scale observational research on this very question, Gal. Also some smaller, more controlled studies, lots of science that I will summarize thusly. Breakfast may indeed be the most important meal of the day, but if it is, is probably not that much more important than all of the other meals. People who regularly eat breakfast either have slightly better health outcomes than people who don't, or there's really no difference in their health outcomes at all. And when I say health outcomes, I mean the kind of health that you would obviously associate with meals and meal timing in highly developed countries like the United States and Israel, places where people have enough food or too much food. So you're talking about like cardiovascular health, type 2 diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, etc. Giant studies have shown breakfast eaters, habitual breakfast eaters, usually have a little less of those bad things. However, there are other kinds of health to consider relative to breakfast, and we'll get back to that. But first, let's consider the origin of the folk wisdom, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It has been hypothesized by me, and, and by some people with more relevant expertise than me, that uh, this folk wisdom simply has its origins in a pre-industrial lifestyle that very few of us live anymore. If you think about the traditional breakfast in the southern United States where I live, that traditional breakfast is full of unbelievably calorie-dense foods. Biscuits, bacon, grits, sausage, hash brown potatoes, more biscuits, maybe with sausage and milk gravy on top of the biscuits. Why did such a gut-busting breakfast evolve as the tradition here in the South? Well, part of it, of course, is about you know local agronomy, what foods grow well here, what foods store and keep well here in such a hot and humid climate. And let me tell you, it is hot and humid. Um, but it's also the case that the southern U.S. had a predominantly agrarian economy quite a bit longer than the northern United States did. So this is food for farmhands, farmhands employed or enslaved. It's food for people who need raw calories to get out there and power them through a morning of cotton picking or what have you. So... Breakfast was important for people who performed energy-intensive manual labor, i.e. most humans, until pretty recently. But why would hungry, hard-working people need to be reminded to eat food? If breakfast was so important to their short-term well-being and functionality, wouldn't they just eat it? Wouldn't they want to eat it? Why would the practice need to be enforced with folk wisdom, like breakfast is the most important meal of the day? Well, 
Lots of studies have shown what you probably already know from your lived experience, which is that people are generally not that hungry first thing in the morning, regardless of their lifestyle. I'm looking at a 2018 study in the International Journal of Obesity, quote, the human circadian system regulates hunger independently of behavioral factors, resulting in a trough in the biological morning and a peak in the biological evening. And the authors go on to say that it's not as simple as ghrelin levels are low in the morning. Ghrelin is the, that's the big hunger hormone. It's more complicated than that. And the mechanisms are not fully understood, but people, generally speaking, tend to be more hungry in the evening than they are in the morning. Speaking for myself, personally, uh, first thing in the morning is basically the only time of day when I'm not hungry. (laughs) So I often say, well, I might as well not eat now because I know I'm going to eat later. Anyway, it's conceivable to me that people who do hard manual labor and who don't have constant access to food, they might need to make a conscious effort to eat first thing in the morning in order to have just the the blood sugar necessary to make it to lunch when they can eat again. Of course, this assumes that people actually used to say breakfast is the most important meal of the day prior to the 19th century when early breakfast cereal industrialists like James Caleb Jackson and John Kellogg started actively promoting the notion as a means of promoting their products, which they did. Those two guys, they probably did not originate the phrase in question, as is commonly claimed. The most compelling case I've ever seen for the origin of that phrase points to a dietitian named Lena Cooper, who wrote the actual words, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, in a 1917 article for Good Health magazine. Of course, that magazine was published by John Kellogg, but uh, anyway. John Kellogg, it should be said, was not actually a breakfast cereal industrialist. He was, he was an evangelist for breakfast cereal, but he was not really an industrialist. That was his brother, Will. Will was in it for the money. John was a true believer. But John Kellogg also believed that uh, masturbation would deplete your vital essence and shorten your lifespan. And so he advocated and personally performed deliberately painful genital mutilation procedures on children and adults. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) okay, a massive 2021 meta-analysis out of China looked at whether regular breakfast eaters have less cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. And the answer they got was, yeah, they do, at least a little bit. Interestingly, these researchers found uh, that correlation weakened considerably when looking at people who skipped breakfast as little as once a week. But of course, correlation is not causation. Here's a 2021 study out of Ohio State. Quote, skipping breakfast is associated with nutrient gaps and poorer diet quality among adults in the United States, not just children. This is an observational study of 30,000 adults. Breakfast skippers ate more calories and were significantly less likely to meet their daily minimums of folate, calcium, iron, vitamin A, vitamins B1 through 3, Uh, C and D. But again, 
It's not like a huge difference, and correlation is not causation. It's possible that people who eat breakfast regularly are simply people who, for other reasons, are more likely to be healthy. Maybe they're richer, and so they have more time to eat breakfast, or or they're more disciplined and regimented about personal health, and so they prioritize breakfast. Or maybe the particular foods that habitual breakfast eaters tend to eat are just better foods than what you might eat later in the day. It's hard to imagine that being the case uh, here in the southern U.S., where it's all biscuits all the time, but uh, it could be true elsewhere. Now, some of the researchers who've looked at this issue have attempted to control for these confounding factors, but it's real hard to do that. It's easy to imagine, though, that eating in the morning just kickstarts your metabolism and makes you less likely to binge later in the day, all that stuff. Again, the research in general supports that notion, but not super strongly. Of course, there are other kinds of health. It's not just about whether you get fat and have diabetes. There is cognitive and emotional health to consider, right? So a uh, 2016 systemic review of research, uh, a review was was performed by uh, researchers at the University of Leeds in England. Um, They found that children and adolescents who habitually eat breakfast tend to perform a little better on tasks requiring attention, executive function, memory. However, that difference is much more significant when compared to children who don't just skip breakfast, but who are chronically undernourished, i.e. really poor kids, probably. So to what extent is this about breakfast versus being a kid who is lucky enough to live in the kind of household where they can prioritize having breakfast every day? The authors themselves from, from Leeds, they, they, they themselves say that there's really no firm conclusions to be made here. Plus, their work was funded by a grant from Kellogg's. So I will reiterate my own personal conclusion from having read through this research. Uh, eating breakfast every day may indeed be important and valuable, but it's probably not that important. It also probably doesn't hurt I couldn't find any study that correlated habitual breakfast eating with negative health outcomes. Of course, now is when the intermittent fasting cult will come in and point out all of the metabolic benefits of not eating for extended periods of time. And we can talk about that more another day. I am intrigued by that research. And anecdotally, I have felt what I perceive to be benefits from some fasting But for now, I I will simply say that these massive observational studies say what they say. Uh, Breakfast eating is at least correlated with good health. And as I understand it, basically all of the metabolic benefits of fasting are also induced by exercise. And exercise is good for lots of other reasons too. So if you can, I'd probably have breakfast and get some exercise every morning. If you can't, I realize that simply not doing anything might seem more efficient. 
simply not eating and not exercising. That seems like a more efficient plan, and we can try to dig into the merits of that on another pod. Hi, Adam. This is Ben in sunny Germany. In the recent few years, I've been living mostly vegetarian for environmental reasons, and I can't manage vegan because cheese is just too good to pass up. Um, but in my few years as a veg vegetarian, plant-based meat replacement products have been increasingly popular and accessible here in Germany to a point at which a major meat product manufacturer has actually made more profit selling meat replacement products than actual meat products. I loved meat when I still ate it and I can't say I don't crave a nice juicy steak every time I smell one, but man some of the fake meat that we get here is pretty damn good. It's not the same but it's decent. It's not, it's not ugly and it's not this disgusting anymore. Um, especially when it comes to processed meat like sausages and ground beef it's not, not bad anymore um, and my question about this topic is do you think there will be a tipping point at which fast food chains will sell more plant-based meat than actual meat what Burger King and McDonald's put in their chicken nuggets or some of their patties is not really meat anyway right so Ben, I'm going to be a uh, pedantic asshole here for a second, but I, I have a particular reason for my pedantry, apart from the fact that I am, by nature, a pedantic asshole. I'm a recovering pedantic asshole. I'm in recovery. Years ago, I used to comment on people's YouTube videos, and I'd say, well, actually, and now I just say, hey, I enjoyed this program. And if I didn't enjoy the program, I say nothing at all. You can do that. Anyway, uh, here's the pet entry, uh, Ben. Not all meatless meat is plant-based. Some of it is plant-based, but the newest and to me the most exciting categories of meatless meat are not plant-based. I'm talking about meatless meat based on fungi, mushrooms, yeast, other things that are members of the fungal kingdom, not the plant kingdom. I'm also talking about meatless meat based on certain protists, such as brown algae, also not plants. And of course, I'm talking about cultured meat, in vitro test tube cultures of animal cells not grown inside an actual animal. I don't know what kingdom of life you'd call that. I mean, the cells are alive, so it's life. But in what kingdom do you taxonomize animal cells grown in a test tube rather than in an actual organism? Anyway, Ben, uh, the reason that I well actually do there is because I am particularly optimistic about the prospects of non-plant-based, non-meat meat. Uh, indeed, soy-based chicken nuggets have tasted pretty much like chicken nuggets for a real long time. Morningstar Farms, that's the big brand here in the U.S. Those, those are basically McDonald's chicken nuggets in taste and texture. But I am honestly surprised by how, how little plant-based burgers taste like a McDonald's hamburger, given all the buckets of food industry research and development money that have been poured into this, and given that, as you say, Ben, a McDonald's beef patty is barely beef. I mean, like, it's beef, 
but so much of its flavor comes from non-beef ingredients. It's real weird to me that no one has made a soy protein hamburger yet that tastes basically like a McDonald's hamburger. Maybe the taste of a McDonald's hamburger is, is more the taste of real beef than we normally give it credit for. Certainly people have made good veggie burgers. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love a, a black bean burger. Got to do that video at some point. And the, you know, like the soy protein burgers taste pretty good too. I, they just don't really taste like burgers to me. Um, if I were going to buy stock in a company that was researching meat replacements, I would put my money in fungus. I'm a big believer in fungus. Fungus never lets us down. But maybe cultured meat will be the big breakthrough if they can, you know, make production cheap enough. I eat a lot less meat myself these days, Ben, and, uh, and meatless sausage is something that I've come to like quite a bit, some good brands out there. Um, but my, my problem with the entire project of meatless meat is that the products you can most realistically recreate are ground meat products surrounded by lots of non-meat ingredients that can distract you from the obviously ersatz nature of the ersatz meat. So burgers, chicken nuggets. And honestly, none of us need to be eating more burgers and more chicken nuggets. Like whether it's made out of meat or soy or fungus or test tube cells or whatever, it's still wrapped in carbs and deep fried and stuff. Like it's not a thing that we should be trying to eat. So if they could make like a meatless salmon filet, that'd be a real big deal for me. But I don't think you can make a convincing meatless salmon filet. Meatless sausages are good. Uh, you know, those are good. But I'm trying to avoid burgers on you know, big buns and chicken nuggets and stuff anyway. So it's really all kind of a moot point to me personally. Uh, to your specific question, Ben, realistically... I think the fast food industry will turn to meatless meat when they can give the consumer a virtually indistinguishable product at a lower cost. There are meatless meats that have been ubiquitous in our food system for a long, long time now. I, mean, I don't know if you have them in Germany, but uh, in the United States, we have bacos and similar products. It is very traditional to have crumbled up bits of bacon on salads here in the U.S. And for many decades, the most popular brands of prepackaged bacon crumbles for salads have been meatless, made of soy. Because the flavor of bacon is pretty easily reproduced with artificial flavors, and the texture of bacon is pretty easily reproduced with soy protein. Maybe not like a whole strip of bacon, especially not the, the fat striations in there, but you know, a little crumble of it has the feel of bacon. And if you make it out of soy, it's cheap, and you can make a shelf-stable product that you can ship and market for very little money. So store-bought bacon bits have been meatless in the United States since long before there was any major groundswell of interest in meatless eating. Bacon bits are meatless because basically they're just as good and they're cheaper. 
when a burger can be described thusly, then I think we'll have ubiquitous fast food and meatless burgers. And I think we'll get there, though I, I would have predicted we'd get there by now, and we haven't. And I'm not even sure I think we should get there. I think it'd be better if we all just ate way, way fewer burgers of any kind and more vegetables and more beans, but that's just me. It is surprisingly hard to make realistic fake meat. You know what else is surprisingly hard? Hiring good people to work for you, especially these days. That's why we have Indeed, the sponsor of this episode. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire people all in one place. You can't be posting to a million different job description sites and swinging back to those sites to see who actually replied. Indeed is a time-saving tool. They've got tools like Indeed Instant Match, uh, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, more than 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. It's according to uh, Indeed's examination of its U.S. data. I have my own little business here, and I have been increasingly reluctantly bringing in other people to do certain things with me. And I like that Indeed allows you to select for the skills that matter to you most. Sometimes you need a person who has like a lot of skills, but they're not all of equal priority. Like there's one of two things the person's got to have. So Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to a Talent Nest assessment from 2019. Three out of four U.S. online job seekers search Indeed each month, according to Comscore. And three million businesses worldwide use Indeed to hire great talent. So can your business. Get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post right now if you go to indeed.com slash Ragusea. That offers only good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Ragusea. Indeed.com slash Ragusea. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, Adam. My name is Lindsay. I am in Montreal, Canada. Uh, my question is about salad. Uh, my husband is the son of Italian immigrants. His parents came to Canada in the 1960s, and they always eat their salad at the end of a meal, and he insists that that's, for some reason, healthier or better for your digestion. And me, as a North American waspy person, I have always eaten my salad at the beginning of a meal, which my mom always said was to prime up your body for digestion. Um, so, who's right? When should you be eating your salad? Thanks. Ah, yes. Ragusia family lore also speaks of a certain uncle who always insisted on having his salad after the meat course and apparently making a big show of it. I believe he is said to have enjoyed mixing his salad with the liquid remains of his main course on the plate. So you'd swirl the salad around in the meat juices or in the tomato sauce. This is something I have done many times myself, much to my delight. The fresh 
crunchy greens with that bright dressing on them that contrasts with the darker roasted flavors left over from the meat or the pasta. And that is a a lovely combination, I would say. A salad after the main course is also quite refreshing, I think. The, the acidity of the dressing cuts the richness of the main course that you just ate and is still lingering in your mouth. This, a salad does this much in the same way that like a fruity dessert does, but <laughs> a salad is much better for you. There's also some whole thing where people say that salad prepares your palate for wine, which I don't really get. I mean, aren't you drinking wine with the main course anyway? According to an unscientific, unrepresentative sample of Italian people writing stuff on the internet, having salad after the main course is regarded as a somewhat old-fashioned tradition in Italy these days, also uh, in France and other parts of Europe. Which is to say, it still happens sometimes. It's also common in Italy to put out some salad with the contorni, the side dishes. So you might eat the salad as you eat the pasta and the meat or the fish. This is in contrast to contemporary United States restaurant culture, where the most common practice is to have the salad first, then the main course, or maybe you know another appetizer before the main course, then dessert than the little mints that come with the check. Actually, it seems the mints with the check tradition has faded significantly over my lifetime. I can't remember the last time I got a mint with the check. That was everywhere when I was a kid. Those little Andes mints, little thin rectangles of chocolate and mint. Love those. What happened to those? You never get those with the check anymore. Hashtag thanks, Obama. I did eat at a very nice Indian restaurant a couple of years ago where the check came with some like, uh, I think they were candied fennel seeds. I was reminded of this the other day when I released a video about the main flavor compound in fennel and anise and licorice and all of that. And several South Asian viewers pointed out that fennel seeds play the role of after dinner mints in, in their culture. And that sounded very nice to me. Anyway, salad, salad. So The folk wisdom you mentioned, Lindsay, is that all of the fiber in the salad will aid in digestion if deposited into the digestive tract behind everything else you've just eaten. This is probably bullshit. Probably. I hedge there because we are talking about Italy and France, where meals, I'm told, can last many, many hours. That's pretty rare in the United States, especially in a restaurant where it's it's really rude to monopolize the table for too long. They would really rather turn the table and sell more food to more people. So, you know, eat and get out, right? Even, Even a meal at a really expensive, luxurious restaurant here, it rarely lasts more than what? 90 minutes, two hours, maybe max? We must now consider the somewhat grotesque science of gastric emptying, the process by which your body drops food from the stomach and into the intestines, where most actual digestion occurs. Any courses you consume prior to gastric emptying are all going to get mixed in with each other and homogenized within the stomach. That's one of the stomach's jobs is to mix everything up and homogenize it. So, if you eat your salad first, 
or last, it theoretically shouldn't matter that much if you eat all of those courses before the stomach empties into the small intestine. The duodenum comes first after the stomach. If you Google, how long does gastric emptying take? You will get answers like two to five hours, or I've seen answers as low as an hour and a half. And those are probably perfectly decent quick answers, but a more involved and more accurate answer is generally going to be given in the form of like a half-life. You know, the half-life of a radioactive material is how long it takes to throw out half of its radioactive particles or something like that. Gastric emptying is sometimes expressed in terms similar to a radioactive half-life because it's not like gastric emptying happens all at once. It's not like your stomach works on your food for a while and then the stomach operator radios down to the duodenum. Okay, you guys ready? And the duodenum says, roger that. Small intestine is a go for gastric emptying. And then the trap door opens at the bottom of the stomach and everything just goes thwomp, <laughs> drops in, in one go. That is not how it works. Rather, gastric emptying is a more continuous process than that. It still has like distinct phases and such. It's not a totally continuous process, but it's also not one big dump. Um, therefore, if you look at the scientific literature on this topic, the kind of next level of nuance up from gastric emptying happens every two hours would be like the half-life of food in your stomach is about two hours or half emptying time is how it's actually expressed. Generally about two hours for half emptying time to empty half the stuff that you put down there, two hours. And looking through the literature, there's actually much debate about what typical half-emptying times might be. It depends on exactly how you measure it and if people were fasted before the experiment. And of course, there's lots of individual variation from person to person, and it depends on what you're eating. Fats, for example, delay gastric emptying. That's one reason why a very rich meal might make you feel a little sick. Anyway, my point is, Gastric emptying is a pretty slow process when compared to the duration of a typical meal. Therefore, it's likely that most of your courses are going to be all blended up before they ever even move onto your small intestine. Unless you are having one of these legendary five-hour dinners that people say are common in Europe. And I always wonder, could they really be like that common? Like, how, how could you possibly get all of your shit done if you ate a five-hour meal every day? But speaking of shit, it is also highly questionable whether it would be advantageous to have all of your fiber positioned in the rear of your fecal mass, as opposed to at the vanguard of your fecal mass, or as opposed to it being you know distributed throughout your fecal mass. Doesn't make much intuitive sense that it would be good for fiber to be the rear guard in your fecal column. I would think that you'd want to have it distributed through every unit of your fecal army. Furthermore, the fact that I can't find any research examining this claim probably indicates that it's a moot point. Your meal gets mostly mixed up before it even reaches your guts. In researching your question, Lindsay, I found a a few legit nutrition experts speculating 
that there might be some advantage to eating your harder-to-digest nutrients later in the meal. Digestion is a process that needs to be revved up. You gotta, you gotta move your bile salts into position and get that breaking everything down. All, all the enzymes. It takes time to move your digestive enzymes into where they need to be. Therefore, you might be more likely to actually digest your protein if you send your protein down the hatch a little after your digestive system has had time to rev up. Protein digestion is, uh, is more involved than, say, carb digestion. So maybe it'd help to eat your protein later in the meal, as, as it, one often does. And that would argue in favor of eating your salad first, not last, right? But as far as I can tell, that is just informed speculation. What has actually been researched in a couple of studies is how salad timing affects your eating behavior. Does having salad first affect how much total salad you will eat? Does it affect how many total calories you will eat in a given meal? There's a group of scientists at uh, my alma mater, Penn State, who did a series of studies on this very question about 10 years ago. Their first study found that people ate significantly fewer calories total in their meal if they started with a salad. And this makes intuitive sense, right? Salad is generally a higher fiber, lower calorie food, unless you are drenching it in ranch dressing or some nonsense. But anyway, assuming it's a good salad. You're most hungry at the beginning of your meal, right? Therefore, you're most likely to eat a lot of a salad if you eat the salad first. Hunger is the best sauce. Makes salad taste real good. And given that there's only so much room in your stomach, filling up first on the salad will result in you eating less of the more calorie-dense foods to come. So one study they did found exactly that to be the case. You know, a small controlled study. But the study had some limitations. Uh, first of all, they only looked at preloading with salad versus not preloading with salad. They didn't compare it to having salad later in the meal. Also, they had every one of their human subjects finish the salad, right? This is not an observational study out in the wild, right? Like this is like human subjects they bring into like a laboratory setting and they have them do a thing and they had them eat the salad and finish the salad. The test subjects had to clear their salad plate if they wanted the 15 bucks or whatever they were being paid to eat dinner for science. So in subsequent studies from these researchers at Penn State, they added some layers of nuance to their, to their research. They had, they had one group eat the salad first, and they had another group get served salad with their main course, right? So it's not a perfect comparison to what you're asking about, Lindsay, but it was one group had salad before the main course, the other group had the salad with the main course. And they had one group eat the whole salad, like they had to eat the whole salad, whereas they allowed another group to eat however much of the salad they wanted to eat which is, of course, a more real-world situation. So the findings, quote, ad libitum salad consumption was less than compulsory consumption. <laughs> yeah. And it did not significantly affect energy intake. So by that, they mean total energy intake across the whole meal. The group that was allowed to eat as much salad as they wanted ate less salad and ended up eating about as many total calories as the control group. Also, 
eating salad first versus eating it later had no significant effect on total calorie consumption. However, eating the salad first did increase vegetable consumption by 23% on average for the whole meal. That's good, even if the total calories are the same. Now, keep in mind, these are just two studies involving you know, a few dozen test subjects in Pennsylvania, and your results may vary. But I have talked with enough nutrition researchers and practitioners to know what they would all be saying right now if they were here. Like every single one of those people I've ever met would be saying, dear God, just eat salad. If you're listening to this show, odds are you don't eat enough vegetables relative to your other foods. So whatever you can do that'll make you more likely to actually eat the salad, do that. Everything else that happens downstream, as it were, will that'll take care of itself. Just get it in the system. All right, next question. Adam from Texas writes, I know you recently moved away from Macon, Georgia, and I wanted to know how much did income tax considerations play in your decision? Just curious, because I currently live in a state without income tax, and though we will probably never leave this great land of crazy people, I'd like to know what kind of things come up when moving across state lines. That's the end of the question from Adam from Texas. That's the great land full of crazy people he was referring to. And I include Adam from Texas's question, not because I think you, dear listener, are burning to know about why I moved from Georgia to Tennessee. I include it because I, I would like to talk more about money on this podcast. I think that it's important to talk about money, even though such talk may be distasteful or dispiriting. I went from being a person who made not enough money to almost overnight being a person who makes way more than enough money. That is thanks to you, dear listeners and viewers. And I do feel uh, I have learned a lot in that transition that I, I would like to pass on to the general wisdom. Might not be useful knowledge, but at least I think it's going to be interesting or entertaining. So money talk. Adam from Texas is asking if I moved from Georgia to Tennessee because Georgia has a marginal income tax of 5.75%. Marginal meaning income in the highest bracket is taxed at 5.75%. In contrast, Tennessee, where I live now, has no personal income tax, none at all. You still have to pay federal income tax, of course, and business income is taxed at 6.5% here in Tennessee. 100% of my income comes from my company, which is Yellow House Media LLC. So I do still pay state income tax in the form of business income tax. That is reason number one why, no, no, tax burden played no role whatsoever in my decision to move from Georgia to Tennessee. There are many other reasons that I will get to, but let's stay with reason number one for a moment. It is crucial to remember that personal income tax is but one of the taxes we pay in the United States and many other countries. We pay taxes on our income, but we also pay payroll taxes that cover you know, Social Security and Medicare, what the rest of the English-speaking world would call old-age pensions. That's a giant category of tax for most people in the United States. 
Then there's property taxes, which you either pay directly if you, say, own your home, or you pay them indirectly via rent if you rent your home. And there's sales and excise taxes, taxes you pay on the things you buy. People in the United States, some people at least, have a weird obsession with personal income taxes. They think that if you're poor enough to pay effectively no personal income tax, well, then that means you pay no taxes. Those people, they don't pay any tax. That is, of course, total nonsense. Poor people pay a far higher proportion of their income in taxes than rich people do. That's because other taxes that poor people do pay are more regressive. Sales taxes hit poor people harder than they hit rich people because poor people have to spend basically all of their income. A person has a certain level of minimum fixed costs for basic needs. And when you're poor, you spend basically all of your money on basic needs. That's what living paycheck to paycheck means. Once you achieve a certain level of wealth, you couldn't possibly spend all of your income if you tried. So you end up paying far less proportionally in sales tax. Americans with income small enough to be effectively exempt from income tax still absolutely do pay taxes. They pay proportionally more taxes than most rich people. This also means that one must consider the totality of the tax burden in a given state, if one is considering moving to a different state to save money on taxes. You can't just consider income tax, right? The state with the highest marginal individual income tax rate is California, 13.3%, highest individual income tax rate in the nation, California. However, the state with the highest total tax burden for all of the kinds of taxes you pay, that, according to the Tax Foundation and many other observers, is not California, but New York. Tax Foundation says Georgia, where I used to live, has the eighth lowest total tax burden in the country. And Tennessee, where I live now, has the third lowest tax burden in the country. Other observers such as uh, WalletHub crunch those numbers and see somewhat larger differences between Georgia and Tennessee, but any such ranking is of limited value because it's about averages, not individual cases. For me, I'm not your typical dude earning a salary from a company in which I have no particular stake. Instead, I earn money from a company that I also co-own with my wife, Lauren. Every conversation I have with my accountant goes right over my head. I just nod and I smile. And when they need something more concrete than that, Lauren takes care of it because she is smarter than I am. So by all of that, I'm trying to say I have, I have no idea if my actual tax burden went up or down when we moved from Georgia to Tennessee to live near family, which is the primary reason we moved here. Just moving near family, totally normal reason to move anywhere. But furthermore, I'd like to say that I would not consider tax burden when considering where to live. That is something that if someone proposed as a factor that I should consider when considering where to live, I would reject. And here are my reasons for that. Frankly, I am lucky enough 
that I do not have to nickel and dime every decision I make. I was not always this lucky. When I was young, I was pretty financially insecure. And when I got older, we were okay. But uh, then we had kids and we quickly became almost not okay all the time. Like we were teetering on the edge of insolvency for several years until you, dear listeners and viewers, abruptly changed my life, changed all of our lives. And for that, I am forever grateful to you. So I want to acknowledge that it is a, it is a fundamentally privileged position for me to say that I don't worry about squeezing every last drop of juice from the orange. The orange I am lucky enough to have has considerably more juice than I need. At least that is the case with the orange I have now. Oranges don't last forever, which is why I am squeezing the shit out of this one. But I am not obsessed with getting every drop of juice, or rather, I'm not obsessed with getting every drop of juice into my cup. This is what makes tax minimization different from other kinds of efficiency. And this is what I really wanted to talk about right now. There are kinds of efficiency that increase the generation of value, of wealth. For example, I have reconciled myself to the fact that the majority of people who listen to this show are going to listen to it on YouTube and not on a podcast app. And that means that I need to make some effort to make the show look good even if it's just me talking into a microphone for 45 minutes. My foamed out pod corner in the basement doesn't look very good. And episodes that I've recorded down there against that you know, plain black background, those have gotten measurably fewer views. So for the moment, I'm recording the episodes in my kitchen, which is where you're used to seeing me. And it involves setting up lights and acoustical foam. I'll show it to you. Yes, this is all necessary because... Kitchens are highly reverberant places being filled with smooth, flat surfaces that are easy to clean of grease and splatter and such. If I wasn't talking into a wall of foam, the show would sound like shit. I'm telling you, okay? It's a lot of extra work for me to set up and tear down all of this stuff every time that I need to record something in the kitchen. And so that is the opposite of efficiency. If I'd taken a business class in school, I might know what the antonym of efficiency is, but I didn't, so I don't. And really, there's no other way to find out, right? I mean, there's just no other way. How could we know what the antonym of efficiency is? Anyway, I've been trying to figure out a way to, uh, to make my pod corner in the basement look nice. I tried a green screen. Didn't work. I couldn't light it evenly enough because it's in a corner and corners cast shadows, you have to light a green screen super evenly to make it all the same color so that you can easily eliminate that one color and no others. And that's what green screening is. I tried, I failed. And then I did the thing that I should have done from the beginning where I asked my wife for help because she's smarter than me. And in 10 minutes, she found this like peel and stick wallpaper with, um, I think it's like vintage Pyrex pieces on it looks super cool. And she's going to put that on the walls in the pod corner. And it's going to be a great background. And the reason she's going to do it and not me is that she will not let me do it because she knows that I will screw it up. And she's right. I also got one of those uh, 
colored spotlights to project onto the wall behind me, as all the YouTubers do, because it works. It's like a $30 thing that instantly creates a ton of ambience. It's a cliche because it works. So hopefully, the next episode of the Adam Ragusea pod will come from my new and improved pod corner in the basement, the carpeted basement, where I will not have to set up and tear down acoustical foam every time that I need to pod. And I can just leave a couple of lights set up on my desk down there. It's going to be far less work for me to pod. That's an efficiency that actually helps me create value. With that efficiency, I will be able to keep making the pod, even though the pod currently makes way less money than the other things that I make. If I can't make this production process more efficient, I'm probably going to stop making the pod, and that would reduce the amount of value that I generate. By streamlining production, I can create more value, more show, more value for you and for me. Tax minimization is a totally different kind of efficiency. Tax minimization doesn't create value. It merely transfers value from one entity to another. Namely, it transfers money from the government to me. And I'm not opposed to that entirely. I have an accountant. My accountant does all kinds of things to make sure that I'm not paying way more tax than I'm legally obligated to pay. That's fine. That's the job of accountants. They would do that even if I didn't ask them to, because literally everything about who they are and what they know how to do and how they do their job is geared toward tax minimization. Well, legal compliance and secondarily tax minimization. That's what they do. But I am not going to go way the hell out of my way to minimize my tax burden. Tax minimization simply isn't a big priority for me because the money, the value, it exists whether I pay it in taxes or put it in my bank. Somebody gets the money either way. Nothing is lost. And I certainly don't like all the things that governments do with the money that I pay in taxes, but I am generally supportive of the project of good government and I am generally happy to pay my taxes. I am so lucky that, for the moment at least, I get to make enough money to provide for my family and for our futures and to pay a lot of money in taxes as well, and to give a lot of money to audience-supported media that I like and to charitable causes that I support. That is a wonderful, privileged position. People ask me very frequently, they ask me, Hey, dude, why don't you have a Patreon? They'd say, I'd totally give money to support the content that you make. And to them, I say, well, thank you very much. I appreciate the sentiment, 100%. But it simply isn't necessary. If you want to support me, just do what you're doing. Just keep watching, keep listening, you know, maybe tell your friends about it, especially the pod. The pod needs more audience. The kind of content I make is, at the moment, very easy to support with advertising revenue. Could I cancel all my advertising and make a living with voluntary audience contributions alone? Yeah, probably. I could do that. But I've been there. I've done that. I worked in nonprofit audience-supported media for most of my career. I worked in public radio. And there were many great things about that model, but many not-so-great things. And I came to the conclusion that media that can support itself with good old-fashioned commerce, it generally should do so. 
because lots of important media can't. And it's better to save the philanthropic dollars for them, those who can't support themselves with commerce. Thanks to you, dear viewers and listeners, I, for the first time in my life, I, I'm the person giving the money, not the person asking for it. That's awesome. That's phenomenal. I am a diamond platinum member, or whatever you want to call it, of many audience-supported podcasts and YouTube channels and broadcast stations, and that is good. Everything about that is good for everyone involved. All of this is to say... I'll go out of my way to achieve an efficiency that creates value. I will not go out of my way to create an efficiency that merely directs value to me instead of someone else. And that's what tax minimization is. I don't record my mileage. My accountant scolds me about this every year. I can take a tax deduction for every mile that I drive in my car if I'm doing it on business, right? I write down a few of like my big trips because big trips are easy to remember, but like all the times I drive down to the grocery to get ingredients for a shoot, I don't record those trips for tax minimization purposes. It's just not worth it to me to go through all of that, all that work, just to make sure that I get the 50 cents or whatever instead of the government getting the 50 cents. I don't support all the things that Tennessee and U.S. government does with my money, but most of my money they spend on education, healthcare, old age pensions, even though they're not called that here in the U.S., uh, social welfare, other things that I broadly support. I even support the military. I don't support many of the missions my country's civilian leadership assigns to its military, but I generally think the world is a you know safer place if the United States has a pretty powerful military, though there have certainly been some significant exceptions to that. But anyway, I'm generally happy to pay my taxes. And yes, some version of the Laffer curve is real. I would feel differently if I was taxed way higher. There probably is a point where I'd pay so much in taxes that it wouldn't be worth it for me to work and create value anymore. But we are nowhere near that point. Nowhere remotely close. When George Harrison wrote, let me tell you how it will be. That's one for you, 19 for me. That was literally his tax bracket. When he was writing Tax Man... The marginal tax rate in the UK was like, was it literally 95%? Something like that. Post-war stuff. (laughs) We're nowhere near that in the United States, and we're not going to be. I am generally happy to pay my taxes. And if I'm not willing to record my mileage to minimize taxes, I'm definitely not willing to move to a totally different place to minimize my taxes. We moved to Tennessee because we have family here. A family who can help us take care of the kids right now and family whom we will need to take care of now or in future years. Also, East Tennessee is real pretty and it's a real nice place to live. I bought a kayak. I took it out on the Tennessee River. I paddled around. I listened to podcasts. It was pretty righteous. Thank you for listening to the Adam Ragusea podcast out on your kayak or wherever you are. Maybe you have a mental kayak that you're on.
If you have a question or a comment for a future episode, email it to askadamquestions at gmail. I'll be far more likely to use it if you send me a video file or failing that an audio file. Introduce yourself, say your thing, send it to askadamquestions at gmail. I'll see you on Monday on YouTube with a video about uh, egg white foams that I'm really happy with. So like two years ago, a guy sent me an email saying, hey, hey man, I like your videos, but you said that it's impossible to whip egg whites with a little yolk or oil in them. And that's not true. Here's a video of this person beating an egg white with a teaspoon of oil in it and it works. Well, it took me two years to make a video in response to that guy and it's coming on Monday. Talk to you next time.